Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joining me this morning is Ben Kinsley, the owner of Imperium Advisors. And Ben and I are going to talk about uh, um, some legislation that's uh, gotten a lot of attention in Montpelier, uh, one of which is S5. Welcome to the show, Ben. Good morning. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, here's a question. What are they calling this bill? I have... Let's see, clean heat standard, thermal sector, carbon reduction bill, and carbon pricing. What's the actual title of this bill? Uh, it's it's a pretty long uh, title, <laughs> as uh, as uh, you might expect. But, um, yeah, it, it basically the idea is that uh, it introduces a carbon pricing uh, um, mechanism for heating fuels in Vermont. Okay, we'll call it carbon pricing then. I think I changed it once or twice on the on the billing for the show. Um, anyway, could you introduce yourself? You've been on the show before, and um, I really appreciate uh, getting the update on legislation. It's in my blood. Absolutely. Well, you served uh, several years in legislation, of course, <laughs> a couple decades in uh, in public service. Well, maybe so not a couple, that. Ben, but a lot. Well, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Yeah, I've been working in public policy in Vermont for the past uh, decade or so. And um, primarily, you know, a bunch of different topics, um, but primarily education, uh, a little bit in energy, a little bit in healthcare, um, a little bit in other areas. Um, but I uh, have worked on um, a number of projects with uh, over a dozen nonprofits. Uh, it's primarily what my scope of practice is for um, for Imperium Advisors and uh, helping to develop public policy uh, that meets uh, meets the needs of Vermonters. That's great. And we've uh, tapped on your expertise at Campaign for Vermont, which I'm involved in. Um, and I must say, Imperium Advisors has got a great website if anybody wants to check Ben out. It's, um, it's a very interesting website. So let's talk about S5 because that seems to be the topic of the day. Um, the Natural Resources Committee passed S5 out, let's see, must have been this week because they, they did, um, they were still talking about it last week, uh, last week. And, uh, the affordability and equity advocates, uh, cautioned that this bill was a blunt instrument and unintended harm would be done to Vermont's most vulnerable. Can you comment about that? Yeah, this is a theme that's been, uh, you know, consistent throughout the testimony on this bill. Um, you know, low income, uh, and, uh, equity, um, advocates have, have really warned that, you know, this bill is, um, a sledgehammer and not a scalpel. And, uh, uh, we heard that again last week just before the, um, the committee passed the bill. Um, Susanna Davis, who's the equity director for the state of Vermont, uh, testified, uh, saying essentially that this bill misses the mark on protections for um, for uh, marginalized people, minorities, um, and then also um, you know folks that are uh, that are at high risk um, and whatnot. So, like one of the areas that uh, you know that we've heard consistent testimony on the bill uh, is people on fixed incomes, right? Um, and and people who are historically marginalized are. Going to be the ones that bear the brunt of um, 
the, the carbon pricing mechanism in this bill. Love it. Since I'm on a fixed income, my ears perked up. Uh, you <laughs> issued through Campaign for Vermont uh, Imperium, issued a uh, policy brief uh, to Vermont state senators calling for them to reevaluate S5. And you also sent out a press release uh, to the media about this. Could you talk, uh, let our listeners know what the the focus was on that press release and um, uh, what you're asking the legislature to do? Yeah, so this is a, a joint project um, that we worked on uh, for Campaign for Vermont um, with uh, Asher Crisp, who is a technology futurist uh, based down in the Manchester area. And he's done a lot of great work looking at uh, what t- new technologies are on the horizon, also analyzing the mechanisms in this bill, um, the options that are available for uh, transitioning to lower carbon fuels, um, which, by the way, we do need to do. Like, to be clear, uh, you know, we need to reduce our carbon footprint, both in the transportation sector, which is about 45% of all carbon emissions in the state are in transportation. Um, those efforts are well on the way. If we have time, we could talk about them yep. here. But um, the uh, the focus of this particular bill is, is the thermal sector, the home heating sector, which uh, is about 35% of all emissions in the state. Um, and so we really try to look at, like, a macro level, what are the impacts of this bill going to be? What are the policy levers that we can um, pull to, to reduce carbon in, um, you know, carbon emissions in that thermal sector without, uh, without uh, impacting those groups that we talked about earlier in an unfair way? And, and another one that we haven't touched on yet that is also impacted by um, the mechanism, the carbon pricing mechanism in S5 it, are rural people and in Vermont, rural Vermonters. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because uh, there's going to be what essentially amounts to an excise tax on um, higher carbon content fuels, and, uh, and then there'll be rebates for lower con- carbon content fuels. Um, one of those lower carbon content fuels is natural gas. Right which only people in Chittenden, Franklin, Chittenden, and Addison counties have access to. Of course, that's where the bulk of our population is. But it also means that uh, we're going to we're basically incentivizing a, a transfer um, of wealth from rural Vermont into those uh, into those uh, more populated areas that already have an economic advantage. And that's really one of the major concerns that we focused on um, in the in the report. And then, kind of more overall, uh, there's a there's a broader concern that this is not that this particular mechanism is not the best one uh, when you look at a return on investment. So if you start looking at um, what are the uh, dollar for dollar where where can you reduce carbon the most, um, it's clear from the research put out by the state. By the way, this is the Agency of Natural Resources, um, as well as other research um, nationally that we looked at. It's clear that the mechanisms um, that reduce carbon the most on a dollar-for-dollar basis are um, are uh, EV incentives, electric vehicle incentives, um, and also uh, weatherization efforts um, uh, are have a much better return on investment dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar than uh, than a carbon pricing mechanism does. Particularly if the carbon pricing mechanism is incentivizing electric heat pumps. Um, which this bill clearly is intending to do. Um, so, so there's a lot of issues when you look at a macro level. Uh, another major issue from a carbon perspective is um, 
you know, we really, and we can get into the nuts and bolts of this, but um, whether or not you're actually gaining efficiency from a, a carbon standpoint, um, moving to an electric heat pump solution really matters, uh, really dependent upon the energy mix that's being used. And one of the things that we found that was, as we started digging into this, that was pretty disturbing is that, um, you know, only about a third of, uh, excuse me, a fifth of Vermont's energy right now comes from renewables. Um and most of the energy, uh, almost two-thirds, comes from uh, hydro. The problem with hydro is that it's not all that elastic, particularly in the winter. Like You can't just right. you know, ramp up hydro production in the winter. So what ends up happening during the winters, particularly at night, when you don't have other forms of renewables like solar in the mix, um, we're pulling energy from southern New England. Primarily, that energy is natural gas-fired energy. Um, and, uh, um, and if you're, you know, heating off of that energy, you're actually losing on the carbon from those, uh, those, uh, um, energy plants, uh, those power plants in Southern New England might reach 35 to 50% efficiency. And then you lose some of that in transmission. You lose some of that transferring that electricity back into heat. Um, so at best, you're probably looking at a, a 35 or excuse me, a, a 40 to, you know, 45% efficiency at best, um, turning that fossil fuel in Southern New England into elect, into electric heat in Vermont. Um, turns out that our natural gas furnaces that are already in Vermont are, uh, much more efficient than that. The older models are, you know, 55% efficient and some of the newer ones are as, as high as 90% efficient. So. If that's looking at stuff like that, um, very clear that the energy mix in use that's driving, you know, these heat pump solutions right. are really critical to whether or not we're actually gaining on a carbon front, on a carbon front. Wow. Very interesting. <clears throat> I do appreciate the fact that there's recommendations that you provided rather than <clears throat> we don't like it. Um, and I had Matt Coda on. You know Matt. Uh, he's an advocate yeah. for the Fuel Dealers Association. He was on last week talking about S5. And, of course, they're op- opposed to it because um, they've, they've got a vested interest in this bill. What other interested parties are out there pro and con? Yeah, um, well, certainly the uh, the equity um, and right. low income advocates are very concerned about this bill for good reason. Um, I would say, you know, there, there's not really an organized rural uh, Vermont advocacy group um, uh, that you know, but but there's certainly voices that have raised right. concerns about what this is going to do to rural. Yeah, I was state. surprised when you were talking about uh, Susanna um, that um, she was told just let's pass the bill and we'll fix it, the equity part later. Um, yeah. What's your we'll response to that? Because I know how that goes. Yeah, I, I mean, she did not take super kindly to that as she as she should not like you know uh, it's important to get these things right this right. is a very complex bill and honestly the ramifications are not fully understood yet like there there's a lot of pieces we don't know like we don't know what the final price is actually going to be right. um we don't know what the weights on each different fuel source is going to be um so it's very hard to do any sort of analysis on a bill like this from a financial standpoint which is why there's no fiscal note on this bill yet uh, which is important to note, and um, and the administration has projected this could be as high as seventy cents per gallon on heating fuel. Um, that's a pretty large number if you're looking at heating fuel is almost five dollars a gallon now, and that's up a hundred and seventy percent from three years ago. Um, 
you know, that's, that's really, that really hurts. Um, And and I think one of the other points is that looking at a bill like this now is really, um, is really, uh, you know, tone deaf to the situation that Vermonters are facing where they're already being squeezed uh, from a, from a heating perspective. Right. Um, So one of the, one of the recommendations we contemplated is putting a trigger in place. Like if nothing else, uh, put a threshold in place so that, you know, if this drops down, you know, back down to, you know, 2019 uh, cost per gallon, you know, levels, then this pricing scheme would kick into place or, you know, it would hold the price of fuel at, you know, $4 a gallon or something like that. It wouldn't drop below that. Yep. Okay, um, Ben, so I do need to just interrupt a little bit because we have to uh, go to a break, and we'll be back to continue this discussion with Ben Kinsley from Imperium Advisors. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, uh, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. I'm here with Ben Kinsley, who's the owner of Imperium Advisor and uh, works also with Campaign for Vermont. So, Ben, we left, and I'm sorry we had to um, cut out, but uh, you were talking about putting in, um, what's the word you use, some caps or some um, some kind of control, because right now there isn't any, and this the prices could just go wherever, right? Right. So uh, the administration has projected uh, currently, as the bill is written, might raise uh, the cost of um, heating oil by 70 cents a gallon. Uh, that's on top of a 170 percent increase in the cost of heating fuel since um, October of 2019. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the one of the comments here is that trying to pass this bill right now is, is really kind of tone deaf to the needs of um, Vermonters and what they're facing in the real world out there. Now, I think, that if I remember correctly, the the governor has been asking them to slow down, right, and um, not to pass this until they can answer some of these questions. Yes, and not just the governor. It's pretty much every state agency has asked them to slow down and uh, let's, you know, let's really understand what this is doing, understand the cost implications, make sure that there are equity protections in place before we pass this. Um, you know, because the the attitude really has been hurry up and get the bill out, um, and then we'll, you know, we'll per- make it perfect later. And that's <laughs> not a not a good way to do public policy, as you know. Pat. No, exactly. I think I've seen some of those bills over the years and what happens, yeah. and nothing happens. And Senator no, Bray, no, I'm going to ask him to come on the show to talk about it. He's the lead sponsor on this bill, is he not? He is the lead sponsor. Um, and you asked a question earlier about um, – you asked a question earlier about, uh, you know, what other interested parties are there. Obviously, the fuel dealers is one. The equity um, and low-income advocates are another group. Um, housing, actually, housing mm-hmm. advocates are kind of concerned about this because the cost of installing these units uh, is, specifically the heat pump units, could be twelve to $25,000, depending on the type of unit and the structure you're trying to install it in. Yep. Um, and that is at least twice the cost of existing you know, fossil fuel options. Um, and so one of the one of the other groups obviously involved are those that are going to benefit from what is amounts to a massive spending package in this bill. Um, and those groups are, you know, installers of heat pumps um, are certainly going to benefit providers of lower energy fuels like um, Vermont Gas Systems, uh, which is, uh, you know, providing natural gas. Um they're certainly going to benefit, at least initially, yeah. uh, from this bill. 
um, energy providers, Green Mountain Power, for example, uh, certainly going to uh, to benefit. They're going to see, you know, they're going to be able to sell more more energy. So, um, so they're certainly going to benefit. Uh, and then also uh, solar installers and other, you know, wind and solar and other clean heat, um, right. or excuse me, clean uh, clean energy providers certainly going to benefit as well because they get to sell that power to uh, to Green Mountain Power and others. Wow. Um, so those are the groups that are stand to benefit, uh, and um, you know, and they're of course the ones that are lobbying the hardest for uh, sure. for this. Uh, well, listen, you Ben, imagine. you've got a call from Mary from Randolph Center. Mary, um, welcome to the show. Do you have a question for Ben? Uh, well, more or less, just a statement yesterday on the show. I listened um, to Myers Miles. Myers Merrill yep. uh, from Ethan Allen Institute, and he had nothing good to say about this bill, and it didn't even sound logical to me as far as, you know, that there's no savings. Um, the heat pumps that are being installed only last 15 years, apparently, and there's been no one of, I don't know what to call a person, but a money expertise person. Um, that has been consulted in this in the financing and making this bill work. So I'm just, uh, you know, kind of baffled by why it's uh, moving forward so quickly. It is uh, it is pretty baffling, uh, to be honest. Like, uh, you know, like I said, I've worked in public policy in Vermont for over a decade, and I've never really seen a bill like this where, where the legislature is pushing so hard um, on a bill they don't really understand the impacts of. Like the fiscal analysis has not been done. Um, the, the legislature has a whole department dedicated to this. Like it's called the Joint Fiscal Office. Um, they have not testified on the bill at all. Uh, and, um, and that is the next step in the process. The, the bill was voted out of the Senate Natural Resources Committee. It's going to the Senate Finance Committee next in all likelihood. And, um, you know, some of those discussions will happen there, but this is like we're talking about a lot of money that's going to be spent over the next decade on these systems that, have a much higher upfront cost, a much higher operating cost. And it's a very different situation than we look at in the transportation sector where incentivizing electric vehicles makes much more sense because, um, you know, even though the cost, the, the upfront cost is higher, uh, they, they provide a, uh, a greater environmental benefit, um, but they also uh, are lower cost to operate and provide better performance than uh, gasoline-powered vehicles. So, like, the transportation sector, this sort of trans- transition to electricity really makes sense. And the heating sector, the technology is just not there yet. Right. And la- last year, Ben, <clears throat> didn't they try this last year and the governor vetoed it and his uh, veto was sustained? So uh, they were ago, supposed yeah. to come back Years with ago. something bigger and better, but not so sure that happened. No, and we didn't even look at it two years ago, honestly, because we didn't think it was going to, you know, we didn't think it was going to get as much traction as it did. Clearly, we were wrong. Um, uh, and so we started looking at it this time around thinking, oh, they must have figured out some things. Um, and the more we dug into it, the more, the less sense it made. Right. Um, really. You know, and, and one of the big issues are that is that energy mix uh, issue, which we just have no idea. Like if, if you're going to move to a more expensive, less reliable technology, um, you know, it, it, there has to be a proven environmental benefit to it, and and right now the state can't prove that. Yep. They can't prove that there's a uh, that benefit there because the energy mix is really all over the place. Yeah. And while you were explaining this bill, I heard the word taxes more than once. Ben, you've got another caller, Harry from Royalton. Harry, welcome to the show. Yes, I've got a question. 
since we can't really support our power grid now, and you go all electric, you're being held hostage by the power companies. And according to the U.S. Meteorological, 75 to 95 percent of sunlight is reflected by a snow cover. Why are these solar panels that are taking up our fields, our pastures, and everything else never cleaned off? <laughs> That's a great question, and actually you can't clean them off um, because uh, it will scratch the uh, coatings on them um, and damage the coatings on those panels, which is why they don't get cleaned off. Um, they just have to, some of them have heating elements in them uh, to try to melt the snow off when it does accumulate, but not all of them, not all of them do, particularly the, uh, the ones you might see on, uh, on roofs and things like that usually don't have those heating panels or heating elements. Interesting. I didn't even know that. Thank you. Thank you, Harry, for that yeah. question. That was very interesting. And this leads into one of the recommendations we made in the report, which is that, <laughs> you know, this snow covering issue and the, the amount of daylight and and, and uh, solar energy that hits Vermont is is really not ideal for utility scale uh, solar power unless it's subsidized, which of course is what we're doing with those uh, those energy um, those utility scale energy um, uh, installations that you see are subsidized by the state. Um, that is, by the way, according to the Agency of Natural Resources, the least efficient use of taxpayer dollars in, ter- in reducing carbon is subsidizing those. But in any event, um, you know, one of the recommendations we made is, uh, you know, let's look at things that Vermont can do that actually uh, does move the needle and, and does it in a lower cost way. One of the things is uh, to invest in solar projects that are in um southern states, particularly uh, southwestern states, where they do have a lot of energy density, uh, solar energy density hitting those states. Um, Utility-scale solar makes much Mm. more sense from a business standpoint. It's more uh, viable. And, you know, carbon does not know borders. Like, carbon emissions uh, um, do not know state borders. They don't know country borders. Like, this is a global problem, um, and it requires a global solution. And uh, if Vermont wants to do our part in reducing our net carbon, you know, investing in projects in in places that are more viable for, you know, solar might actually make sense. So that's yeah. one of the things we recommended. Another thing we recommended, um, which I think is kind of clever, is uh, um, Vermont already is net carbon neutral. Like just so that everyone understands that we our forests and our trees and our plants absorb more carbon than the population of Vermont produces um, on Oops. an annual basis. You can hear the music, Ben. That's a clue that we have to take another break. And this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, and we'll be back with Ben Kinsley to talk about uh, carbon pricing. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm here with Ben Kinsley, and we're talking about S5. And Ben, I got an email on my cell phone for you. So cool. Barry in Burlington, he said... 
Pat, I may have missed this point. Heat pumps don't work to heat your house below certain temperatures that occur many days in Vermont. You still need backup. Yes, and this is actually a great point. Um, this is something that, you know, a lot of, it's interesting, you have a mix, uh, and I said earlier, like some of the, uh, the people that stand, stand to gain from this are folks that in, install heat pump systems, right? Um, and, uh, they, a, a number of them actually testified against the bill, um, partially because, uh, of the expense of installing them. Uh, they're not viable in every single home. And um, and then the second piece of it is that they're never actually replacing uh, a fossil fuel um, heating system. They're installing these heat pumps alongside them. So they're not a full replacement. You still need some other source of heat, um, you know, during those uh, cold winter nights. And that could be, you know, straight up resistance heating. So like my house in Burlington uh, was built in the 70s. It has electric baseboard heaters um, that were installed in the 70s because... At that point in time, electric power was cheap, um, and people were concerned about uh, the energy yep. crisis in the north, in the in the Middle East. And very quickly, uh, my the house was retrofitted with a, a natural gas um, system, uh, and uh, we do not use the baseboard heaters unless uh, we absolutely have to. <laughs> so. I think you and I talked about this when we uh, bought our house in Berlin. It was all electric heat, and I think within two days, Bruce had it torn out. And we put in our system 2000. You have another caller. You're on a roll today, Ben. Uh, Bruce from Essex. Bruce, you've got the floor. Uh, any questions for Ben? Well, a couple perspectives, Pat, if you will. Sure. Um, you know, I'm a, I was a policy wonk in a previous life. Oh, I um, know this, Bruce. Excellent. Yeah, yeah and, <laughs> and I'm also an environmental historian and I study a lot about Vermont. Uh, I think one of well, two points. Uh, Ben's hinted at it, but the climate council, at least the legislative appointees, are stacked with people who represent the renewable energy uh, business, uh, who consult and make money at it, uh, and then of course a vice president of Green Mountain Power. Um, and you know, I tend to consider Vermont as an energy colony of Quebec because Energir, uh, the holding company in Montreal, owns both Green Mountain Power and uh, Vermont Natural Gas. So that's that's whole cronyism thing. Uh, yeah. But the other thing going on is um, really counterintuitive. They're passing this bill and the housing bills making it through the legislature promise to completely transform Vermont uh, with, you know, a few months' consideration by the legislature. Behind the housing bill that I guess just came out of the Senate committee is an assumption that we need 40,000 new houses by the year uh, 2030 um, or 20, yeah. 2130, I guess it is. It's 2030. I'm sorry. I I was out snow blowing. (laughs) Think about that. I've looked at the census figures. Uh, Households in Vermont have about 2.3 people. Uh, If you were to build 40,000 houses in that period of time, you could see a population increase, perhaps as high as 90,000 people. Now, I just can't believe that, but 90,000 people and 40,000 new housing units are going to have considerable energy demands and also will raise greenhouse gases Mm -hmm. unless 
uh, as one engineer has recommended, they, they are real zero, not net zero. So that's, that's uh, just something that just boggles my mind. And I know Vermont has always been deni- uh, dominated by elite economic interests, and the beat goes on. And uh, that's the thing that gets me the most. Uh, people want to yeah. focus on the technologies. I want to focus on the policymaking and the politics, and that's the thing that gets me the most. So, anyways, uh, I'll go back to snow blowing in a little while, <laughs> and I have uh, you know, the sound. Nice to chat with you, Bruce. Nice to chat with you. We miss you around Montpelier. <laughs> I don't miss it. <laughs> I, I know, I'm with you on that one, but I miss the people. Good but anyway, thanks, you. Bruce. Yeah, this is a, it's an interesting, couple interesting points there. There are certainly special interests at play in this bill, and the Climate Council was dominated by them. Um, they're the ones that kind of introduced a lot of the policy recommendations in this bill. The other thing I would say, um, you know, we haven't looked at this as closely as we should, but um, half the people on the uh, Natural Resources Committee in the Senate have uh, energy consultant listed as their occupation. Huh. Um, might might uh, start asking questions about uh, who they are getting revenue from, right? Where, where are their, uh, uh, who are they consulting for? Um, there's some legitimate questions there. I think that hmm. um, folks should dig, in, dig into because, like I said earlier, the, the only the groups that this really benefits, like clearly the 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 environmental benefits are dubious um, until more analysis is done, and it has a potential to hurt the you know the most vulnerable Vermonters. Um, the only people that really are clearly gain from this legislation are uh, some of those uh, some of those folks we talked about earlier. This the power oh. companies, it's the clean energy companies, um, and the uh, the HVAC installers that might actually be installing these heat pumps. So. Isn't that all the new jobs? They're all looking at the energy sector for expansion of jobs, which in one way is a good thing. But on the other way, it's what the future they want the future to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we should, um, you know, we should talk about some of the solutions. I don't know if you have other questions. Well, I I really did want to just highlight the omnibus housing bill that that Bruce referenced in. But also, I think people need to understand what's going on in education. Um, That's a little concern to me, but um, we may have to have you return here. Um, I have one more (laughs) caller. You are on a roll, Ben. Fred from Newberry. Fred, do you have a question for um, Ben? Yeah, I do. Hey. So, anyways, uh, just for easy arithmetic, say 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 the for the fuel uh, producers, and that includes the guys that dig it out of the ground and the guys that refine it, and then the people that sell it. Say it costs a dollar, and for them to make a profit that's reasonable, they'd have to increase the price by say ten percent or fifteen percent. Now, I want to know how much the governments want to increase the price. What kind of percentage does the state, the federal, and the local government charge right. for that oil? I think uh, yeah. too much. I don't, that's what we don't know, that's right, Ben? That's a great question. I mean, I mean, fossil fuels are still subsidized, believe it or not, by the federal government. Um, kind of mind-boggling that they are. Uh, but then equally so... Uh, 
you know, uh, cleaner technologies are also subsidized by state and federal governments. Um, maybe that'd be a really interesting analysis to do. I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. What I do know, though, is that, uh, like I, like we mentioned a couple times here, the, the initial take on this uh, um, this bill that the Senate's working on, S five, is that it could increase the cost of heating oil by seventy cents a gallon, um, and that's. Uh, um, fairly substantial increase, talking, you know, maybe as high as 20%, depending on when this goes into effect and what the what the fuel prices are at that time. Uh, that's ouch. Um, yeah. For those of us like myself who are on fixed incomes, um, it gets a little scary sometimes. Anyway, thanks, Fred. I appreciate it. Um, ben, um, let's see. If you could just take a, a minute or two just to, to wrap this up, because um, I really do want to talk about education, and uh, yeah, because um, that's so critical at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess what I would close with is uh, I want to be very clear. We're not, like, this report is not saying we, we should just sit on our thumbs and not do anything about um, and, and not do anything about uh, carbon in our heating sector. There are a number of things we can do. Continuing our weatherization efforts um, is one of them. We can also uh, recapture, and this is, I think I started mentioning this earlier, but recapture some of our land to um, to reforest. And particularly what would be interesting is looking at land along our lakes and streams mm-hmm. um, and uh, replanting trees along those riverbanks, stabilize those riverbanks, even buying some land back from uh, from farmers. We have a we spent a lot of money over the last two or three years trying to get farmers to comply with best practices. Um, Twenty-five million dollars a year is what we have, slit, um, you know, earmarked for that in, in our state budget. Uh, we could buy a lot of farmland for twenty-five million uh, and be strategic about buying it along um, along waterways and then replanting trees to stabilize some of that runoff, but also to capture carbon. So I think there's some interesting things to look at there. We could also uh, do that same thing uh, in other parts of the country that have cheaper land than we do. Um, you know, as a, as a way to do that, we talked about the solar options, investing in solar, utility-scale solar in, you know, southern states where uh, it makes more sense, where they have more sunlight and uh, less snow mm-hmm. than we do. Um, and uh, and then also looking for new forms to baseload renewable power. We talked about some of the constraints earlier with solar and wind and uh, hydro here in Vermont. Um, there's a lot of controversy about whether biomass is is really renewable or not. Um, I won't weigh in on that on that uh, subject, but it's not scalable in any event. It's not something that we can just build a ton more of or pretty much mm-hmm. tapped out in there. So I think uh, one interesting new technology that's come along uh, is um, geothermal, is, uh, is some of the new drilling technologies that have come along in the past decade or so have really made geothermal a lot more accessible. And as far as we're, we're uh, aware, there's never been um, a geographic survey in Vermont for to, to look at that option. Um, and then further down the road, like there's newer technologies even than that, uh, fusion power and, and other things that may end up replacing some of those fossil fuel plants in southern New England. And, you know, those are much, uh, much better from a, a, a carbon standpoint, a life cycle carbon standpoint. Um, and uh, so the, so some of those electric and also potentially reduce the cost of electricity when you start looking mm. at fusion power. So, um, you know, so those, some of those technologies that are, you know, a decade or two away 
um, could make heat pumps and resistance electric heating a viable option, but there's just you know, our analysis says it's just not true today. Right. Well, I do want to thank you and Asher for all this work because it's very interesting. I'm going to reach out to Senator Bray and have him come on here um, because all of these things make sense. And Vermont is so small. I don't know. We can't move the needle no matter what we do, I don't think. But um, it's good to be part of it. I, I support that. But at what cost? So really quickly, give people a little flavor for the omnibus housing bill. Does that have a number yet? Uh, it does not have a number yet that I've seen. Okay, so it's... Um, but, this is, um, but this bill has been work, been working on, uh, or has been worked on. Yeah. <laughs> Those are difficult this morning. Uh, in the Senate um, uh, okay. Economic Development Committee, really since the start of the session, so right. about six weeks ago, um, six, seven weeks ago. And, you know, this is uh, this was the priority of the new incoming chair, Senator uh, Ron Hinsdale, and she really focused on this as, like, we need to get this done. Um, unclear exactly what the impact of the bill is going to be at this point. Um, one of the more controversial points is that it does overrule local zoning in mm-hmm. a number of areas, particularly in housing, deve- in housing density and parking requirements, uh, unit type. So, for example... Uh, you know, it, it uh, mandates that duplexes and quadplexes be, um, be you know, uh, legal in any, um, in any area zone for single-family houses. So, um, you know, some of the municipalities are kind of up, on, up in arms about that. I think, you know, there's – you can go both ways on it. Um, I think what we're more excited about uh, from a policy perspective is it also does make some changes to Act 250 um, and, and that – process. Um, still, again, not exactly everything that the administration wanted, um, but it does make some positive steps. And now we'll just see if it survives the Natural Resources Committee who just passed that uh, S-5 bill we were talking about. Um, they're the ones that have really killed the uh, any Act 250 bill in the last you know, huh. decade. Well, if they want to so. have 40,000 houses built by 2030, they may want to take a look at Act 250. Oh, that's not happening. But anyway, you have another call, Ben. You're on a roll. Uh, Rich from Starksboro. Rich, go ahead. Hi, I have a housing-related question. I assume there's, there's state and federal money going to be pumped in a little bit, at least to help with the cost oh, yeah. of this housing, I guess. And one mm-hmm. of the things I'm concerned about is uh, taxpayer dollars being used to do this while the people who buy these things could – eventually have them become short-term rentals, and you're not going to get any head with trying to get more housing if they these units go into short-term uh, rentals. Is there safeguards there? Or are there going to be covenants and deeds so people can't put these things in the short-term rental market? Hmm. Uh, that is a great question, yes. and uh, and that's been a hot topic lately as well, as um, you know, single-family homes that have been converted into short-term rentals. Um, and what do you what do you do about that? I think there are safeguards in place. The the agencies that administer these dollars do have strict uh, requirements for homeowners. So, for example, um, you know, homeowner, and this is where a lot of the housing need is. There's obviously some rental housing need, which is this not this, you know, the the issue of uh, um, short-term rentals doesn't really apply there because there's already safeguards. But in the owner-occupied market, there certainly are. Um, some open questions there, 
but most of the agencies that administer those dollars have very strict guidelines in place that would prevent that from happening, and they could actually lose their grants uh, if they, um, you know, bought a house, a single-family home, and then turned around and, and started uh, using it as a short-term rental. So there are some protections there. Um, the bill does add almost $100 million, I believe, as it's currently drafted, to um, to help develop uh uh, housing in Vermont. That's on top of um, a couple hundred, a couple hundred more million that were invested from federal funds over the last couple of years. The ARPA funds and the um, we're still haven't quite seen the IIJA funds yet, um, but those are those are coming. So there's there's quite a quite a lot of dollars tied up in this, and um, you know there there probably will continue to be over the next couple of years. Great question. Thank you very much. We're trying to get Peter Tucker from the Vermont Realtors Association to come on, but he has literally been living at the State House. Every time I watch a committee, there he is in the background um, watching this bill like a hawk. Uh, so it's still yeah. a committee bill. Um, when do you think it'll have a number so people can uh, – is it out there where people can read it? Um, I would expect it to have a number this week. Oh, good. Um, I think we'll we'll see a number on that bill this week, and um, you know the the real question is uh, does it survive the Senate Natural Resources yep. Committee and the changes to Act 250 that the bill contemplates? Um, you know, there, there's a mixed reaction from the natural, you know, the the environmental advocates right. on the bill. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens there. Thank you. That was great. Um, and Senator Hensel has been uh, she's really been focused on this and committed to. Uh, um, housing in Vermont, and I give her credit for that. So we'll see what happens to the bill. Yeah, she's, um, yeah, she's been on a mission. She, yeah, excellent. Um, well, somebody's got to take it on because we need this. Anyway, the the other thing in five minutes, Ben. Let's see if you can do this. Um, talk about education. There's uh, the one that I'm interested in. Obviously, is they want to end in, in independent school choice. Hard for me to say. Um, they want to, a school choice to go away. Yeah, um, but that's probably the most controversial um, education bill in play. There's also some some bills that would do a couple other interesting things, um, but are are, uh, are are less interesting to talk about. Um, yeah, I mean the big the big one is there's two bills that were introduced last week in the House and the Senate, um, and basically what they do is eliminate uh, Vermont's public uh, tuitioning system, which is something that. Has been in place since uh, the the late uh, 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, has over 150 year tradition in Vermont. That's uh, okay. towns that do not operate a school, um, or at least don't operate a school for specific grade levels. Uh, can um, you know those kids can go wherever they want. Basically, they can go to an independent school. They can go to another. Um, you know, they can go to another uh, public school, and the, the district will pay tuition. Uh, will pay their tuition, uh, at least up to a certain level. Um, and uh, this is a system that's been in place for a long time. It's worked really well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's a form of school choice. It's actually the original school choice system uh, in the country was uh, this town tuitioning system that Vermont uh, created back in the 1800s. And, um, you know, the, there's a big push from the uh, public school administrators, so superintendents, principals, uh, um, you know, school boards in the public school sector uh, to try to end this program. And they're using um, some of the recent Supreme Court rulings to to try to make that case. Um, A lot of the issues that 
um, they're pointing to are already addressed in current law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this really is, you know, at its front, they're concerned about, you know, the separation of church and state because the Supreme Court uh, of the U.S. Um, said you can't discriminate, um, you know, tuitioning programs based on uh, the religious affiliation of a, of a school. Um, so they're all concerned about that, which is a legitimate concern, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so few students. We're talking about maybe two dozen students that might choose to take their tuition dollars to a religious school um, and 6,500 students that uh, to currently have access to that program that can take it wherever they want and are not taking it to um, to uh, uh, a religious school. And so this is really a situation of, like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Well, it seems to me um, um, that there's room for all types, and it's great to give parents a choice because not one size does not fit all in how one learns. And we're talking about Vermont st- students and children, so it should be yeah. a very interesting discussion. It should be about the kids, not uh, about the schools, right? Uh, that's Vermont's my Constitution thought. The Constitution guarantees uh, a right to um, a quality education right. uh, for all Vermont children. Uh, it does not say that that, uh, that they deserve, um, you know, a public school right. uh, necessarily. It doesn't specify that. It says that they deserve the best education that we can give them. Um, and in some cases, that may not be at a public school. Yeah, maybe they uh, should take a little time looking at the outcomes of all the different uh, alternatives. Um, but anyway, Ben, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Um, this has really been very interesting. I think you won the award for the most phone calls, so good for you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll be talking to you soon. Ben Kinsley from Imperium Advisors. This is uh, Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Stay tuned. We are having Philip Seiler and Joanne uh, Redding from the Vermont Assistive Technology Program coming up. Thank you all. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald back with you with Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joining me on the phone is Philip Seidler, who's the program director for the Vermont Assistive Technology Program, and Joy Ann Reddington, um, who also works for the program. Welcome to the show, both of you. Morning, Pat. Thanks Thank for you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. This is great. Um, I was asked before um, I started my show, they put me on the air and they said, what is assistive technology program? So um, I'm very excited to have you both on here because I think it's a hidden treasure here in Vermont that nobody, a lot of people don't know about. So first, Philip, we could start with you and then Joanne. Um, could you tell a little bit about your background and why you got interested in assistive technology? Sure, happy to. Um, so um <clears throat> I uh, actually uh, have been uh, an employee of the state and um, the Department of Disabilities, Aging, and Independent Living for about nine years now. Uh, I started off actually as their IT director, um, and when the assistive technology program uh, position came available, uh, I decided that I really wanted to shift more from um, (laughs) working with computers to working with people. And uh, I've seen firsthand from that time, you know, the genuine impact of assistive technology on people's lives, um, the uh, freedom and the uh, independence that it grants, 
uh, and uh, it's just such a wonderful mission, uh, and I was uh, thrilled to be able to, to lead this group. That's great. I can understand looking at computers all day. I think the people aspect's got a lot more uh, uh, to be um, attracted to. Uh, Joanne, what's, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and about assistive technology? Definitely, um, and feel free to call me Joy, Pat. Oh, um, thank you. No problem. Um, well, I've only been with the team since January, but I've been in the uh, disabilities field probably since I was 22 years old. Mm. Um, but my first uh, interaction with uh, assistive technology was a personal one. Um, I was maybe in second grade, and I have um, a form of cerebral palsy on my left side. Mm. And um, my teacher just put things together with, rubber bands and pipe cleaners and uh, colorful paper clips to help me grip things with my left hand so I wouldn't drop things on the floor. And she did it in such a lovely way that didn't make me stand out in a bad way. You know, other kids thought that it was a cool thing to wear, (laughs) so they wanted to wear it too. So, like, all of a sudden everyone had a hand grip. So (laughs) That's cool. It it was an amazing thing, and uh, from then on I was just, really into kind of MacGyvering things to see what I can do, not knowing that that was really assistive technology at its basic form. Well, good for your teacher. That's great, um, because I'm sure uh, the folks that work in your department need to um, need to know how to work with your clients and, and make them feel comfortable, as you were just saying. So that's great. Um, Philip, can you uh, give us a definition of assistive technology, see how close I came? Yeah, sure. Um, so assistive technology is really any uh, piece of equipment or strategy um, that uh, allows someone to live, work, play um, more independently. Uh, and so the, the spectrum of things that are included literally are uh, as simple as a uh, long handle shoehorn, you know, which is a couple bucks. Uh, all the way up to um, uh, very sophisticated technology that can allow someone to uh, type simply using uh, their eyes and Mm. and gazing at a a virtual keyboard. So it runs a huge gamut, uh, and, um, you know, what you shared with us was was pretty spot on. So, um, Well, I must confess, I actually did a show uh, at the shop, um, oh, a b- bunch of years ago now, I brought a photographer and we interviewed the, the then director and I was just fascinated and a few things have stuck in my mind. Um, and actually, Joy, what you were talking about, about gripping a spoon and a knife, that's what's, that's one of the things that stuck out to me the most that if you have uh, shaking or have some dis- a problem clenching your fists, you've got, uh, these spoons and knives and forks that can really help you um, uh, use them pro- appropriately. So that's the one thing that's stuck in my mind. That's great, Pat. Actually, the one thing for the, those objects that you were talking about that I was really impressed with that I just recently saw, it's a counterbalance spoon that is uh, good for someone who has shaky hands, like someone with Parkinson's. Right. And what it does is that the counterbalance kind of negates the shake. So then the person can bring the spoon up to their mouth without, you know, the food going everywhere independently. Excellent. I mean, I'm just, I am so excited that I hope people know that you're there. Um, 
And could you, I, I, we're just talking about the client and what's perfect for them. Um, you use this uh, process called CETT, if I have it correctly. It's critical event team training. How do you use that technique to find the right tools for your clients? Either one can answer. Philip, you want to start and, and Joy can um, add on something? Yeah, I'd be happy to start. So actually that acronym stands for something different. Oh, oh. where did I get that? Um, I don't know, but that's okay. Right. Um, and it's uh, 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 SET stands for um, Consumer Environment Tasks and Tools. And it's actually a modification of a more widely known process called SETT set. Huh. Um, but, but we use it uh, in our work uh, as a guide for how we help individuals. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the first letter is C, consumer, because each person is an individual mm-hmm. and how they a- approach technology is individualized. And so, you know, you can't, uh, you can't give somebody a tool that they're not comfortable with um, or, you know, just have no experience with. Uh, you have to really take into account what, who they are, what they're trying to accomplish, and any barriers they may have. Uh, the E for environment, then, is, you know, what's the physical setting that that's being, being used in, because that can also influence um, what sort of technologies are better in a particular space or not. Uh, tasks refers to uh, what are they con- trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the tasks? What is the goals? Um, and we often find that during that conversation, uh, you know, somebody will approach our program, uh, which I should point out is free to mm-hmm. any Vermonter and uh, easily accessible uh, from our website. Uh, but uh, we find out in those conversations that usually somebody approaches us with one task and we find that there's usually more. Um, so uh, it's a good conversation starter. And then finally, the, key, the last T is for tools, and that's where we get to the meat of what we do, right. where we uh, we can recommend technology for someone uh, and demonstrate it for them and even uh, loan it for 30 days so somebody can actually try it out in their own physical setting. Yeah, that's. I think that's important. Do... Your, do the customers have to have um, uh, a referral from a doctor, or can they just call you up and say, I've got this problem, I need some help? That is the best part of our program is that we don't require anybody to have a, what, quote-unquote, official referral from, like, a doctor or a PT right. or an OT. Um, it's really come as you are. And <laughs> that was ha- my first introduction to the group was actually as a consumer. Um, I sustained the TBI a few years back, and I'm also autistic. And the TBI really knocked me for a loop, and I couldn't do a lot of the things that I used to do. And I was kind of, you know, downtrodden about it, and someone told me about the AT program. And, you know, by that point... I already went through a slew of doctors and a slew of referrals and all this paperwork. And I was just like, no, I really don't want to do that. I really don't want to talk to another person. And my friend was like, no, you don't understand. You don't have to have a referral. You don't, you can walk in there and, or call them. This is pre COVID um, and say, Hey, I'm having this issue. Can you guys help me? And I was like, what's the catch? No catch. Hmm. And it really was that simple. And the tools that they gave me and the confidence to use these tools 
led me kind of a 180 and led me to actually working at the uh, assistive technology program because I thought I was done for. I thought I couldn't do my job wow. anymore, and that was my fate. And it really gave me a new lease on life. Well, what a great story, Joy. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I, and I'm glad to hear that people can – well, they have to make an appointment, correct? At this That's point, correct. yes, because, yeah. uh, you know, we're still kind of doing our uh, demonstrations remotely unless, you know, a person is really homebound, and right. then we try to make accommodations. But we're trying to stay safe and, of oh. course, keep the consumers safe as well. Well, exactly. Um, and. It's all new to us, so we have to take precautions. Now, I know it's not just in Waterbury. You've got sites um, all over Vermont. How many sites are there in the state? Yeah, we run three trial centers throughout the state. Um, Waterbury is obviously our, our main one uh, right in the uh, you know central atrium of the Waterbury State Office Complex. Uh, we also have an office in Burlington at the uh, HireAbility um, formerly Voc Rehab office on Cherry Street. And uh, we have a tryout center um, down in uh, Castleton, uh, on Castleton's campus. Great. I met a gentleman when I did that video. Um, he was disabled, but he was, I think, running the Rutland uh, somewhere down south, running the office down south. I don't know if he's still with you, but he was he was amazing. I was very impressed. Um, he obviously had uh, some disabilities, but um, he was doing just great. Yep, Ben still runs that office down in Castleton. Well, um, and covers the southern part of the state. For good for him. He was amazing. I really enjoyed meeting him. Um, so, I guess you have different. Uh, and Joy sort of mentioned it. You do um, training for um, individuals, for corporations. Um, you have um, a lot of things that you offer, not only to help your customer, but to also help the employer um, understand what's going on and how to give the employee some support. Uh, how does all that work? Yeah, so there's multiple ways that we can engage. Um, we do uh, larger trainings. Um, again, this is more prevalent before uh, COVID, COVID right. but we'll do larger trainings on specific types of technology. Uh, for example, switch access, um, or um, we've done some on alternative and augmented communication devices. Um, and we've also we'll do presentations for uh, sort of um, you know uh, community groups or or uh, commerce groups. Um, I did one a few years ago for you know a human resource uh, professionals association just to let them know what nice. the program is, how it can work, and support them. Uh, but then also we can provide for a fee basis um, some very targeted uh, technical assistance. Nice. So if somebody does have a piece of assistive technology that is, um, uh, you know, a, just requires a lot more hand-holding and support, yep. um, then um, we, we can, at our discretion, uh, do some some higher-intensity training. Uh, but generally, uh, you know, we find that we, we do enough to get somebody started on their That's own. That's great. And then they're able to and they're able to advance without. I'm going to have to take a quick break. Um, And this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, and I'm here with Philip Seiler and with Joy Reddington. So we'll be right back talking about assistive technology. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and I'm here uh, with Phil Seiler, 
who is the program director for Vermont Assistive Technology, and uh, Joy Reddington, um, who works in the program. And we were talking about um, the availability of um, <coughs> IT, and it's there if you just call up and talk to it. Can you tell me, Phil or Joy, what are the requirements or training that your folks go through to be able to provide assistance for your customers? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we do a lot of self-directed training. Um, there are some certification programs uh, in assistive technology. Um, uh, Resna is an organization that offers one. Uh, and there's also an international one that, whose uh, name is eluding me at the moment. Um, but uh, none of our staff is currently um, certified in that way, but that's okay. We come from a variety of diverse backgrounds. Um, as you noted, uh, Ben, who works out of Castleton, has his own disabilities, so he's got a lot of personal experience. Um, our uh, AT consultant in Waterbury, um, Tracy, has an engineering background, mm. and um, so uh, she comes at it from a very, uh, from that sort of maker tinkering mindset that Joy was mentioning. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're very much a, a, a group of generalists. As you can imagine, there's so much different technology out there for the range of conditions um, that uh, it's really hard to we all sort of have our niche specialties, but it's hard to drill down. You've got to know you got to know um, a little bit about a lot of things. Yeah. Does uh, does each of the do each of the sites have the same uh, equipment displayed? Um, I mean, are they all pretty much modeled after Waterbury, or a, a limited supply, and then um, the uh, your your staff will connect the right the right item with the right customer? Well, that's the beauty of it, actually, Pat, is that each tryout center will have the basic AT that is. Because we don't like to generalize because everyone has a very specific need. So we try to have a little bit of everything. However, um, as people start coming into the specific tryout centers, we start noticing patterns of certain tech Hmm. that is needed in certain areas. So, for example, I was talking to Ben yesterday and we were talking about the uh, Castleton tryout center which Castleton was amazing in uh, allocating a space for us for the um, center because the one in Rutland uh, closed. Ah. So um, he was telling me that, yeah, I really don't do anything with iPads down here. Um, Mostly it's about logistics, like uh, talking about people with wheelchairs, which he is such an invaluable resource for that. I'm in a motorized wheelchair too, and he has given me so many tips and tricks just to help me. I can only imagine how he's helping folks down there. Um, so, yeah, he has that very specific niche where he's really good at logistics, helping people connect to, you know, funding sources for their wheelchair or just ideas on how to fit yourself for your wheelchair. And um, maybe in Burlington, they are more iPad-oriented, so maybe they have more iPads to then dole out. But the other beauty of our program is no matter where you are, um, we can get equipment for you. So, for example, for my personal experience, one of the things that helped me in my previous job was um, Dragon Natural Speaking, which takes your voice and puts it into text. Hmm. Um 
my dexterity doesn't allow me to type very fast and it's kind of frustrating. So then this way I'm able to type fast and get my notes done. And they didn't have the program and the speaker, not the speaker, the headphone that I needed. So they just called another tryout center and had that tryout center then send it directly to my house. No cost to me. And when I was done with it, I could send it back. Again, no cost, which is amazing because the biggest barrier, I think, right off the bat for any kind of assistive technology is how am I going to pay for this? Right. So, And it's expensive, especially today with inflation the way it is, to go out and just buy an iPad and then realize that's not the tech that you need. What we do is we try at the very lowest tech and then move up as the person is comfortable or as the lower tech doesn't meet the person's needs. So this way... If cost is a problem, we don't turn off people right away. Like, um, oh, boy, this person wants me to uh, use an iPad. I can't afford an iPad to save my life. Well, for 30 days, you get to use the iPad. Mm. And if that's something that really works for you, you know, then we can talk about options. But it doesn't make sense if an iPad is not what that person needs. Right. Well, I think it's so important you mentioned, um, and we're going to talk about your ATP Advisory Council. I worked in Barry City, uh, and then they put together an, an equity committee, and we had a young man there that was in a wheelchair, and he pointed out stuff that unintentionally I and others would never see as a, as a barrier. Um, it's not done intentionally. It's just you don't think about it. And he would point things out on the sidewalks, on all around town, things that cause him trouble. And we were able to address a lot of those issues. But I, on my own, I probably wouldn't have thought of it. So it's very good to have people who have lived it and um, can share their experiences. And I, and I think Phil said it the best. We really do have a diverse group where, you know, a lot of people are looking for, you know, the are you assistive technology trained? And, you know, yeah, that's important. But what's more important is the human aspect. Like my my niche, so to speak, is I have a degree in psychology and I went from one end of the spectrum kind of to the other in a really fast time. And for some folks that we serve, that is the case. You know, they got into a car accident. They, you know, sustained a TBI. Their right. life is different. And it's so confusing. And you don't know what ends is up. We are that piece to try to be like that equilibrium. Like, hey, okay, we understand things are different. Let's try to help you gain a new equilibrium. And because we're such a diverse group, it takes away that barrier. Like if I'm talking with someone and I roll up in my wheelchair, I think it's a little bit less of a like, oh, okay, this person may understand me a little bit better. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know from personal experience, I had a bunch of like therapists and everything come to me. Very, very helpful people. And I wouldn't be where I am without them. But there was a point that I was like, do they really understand my point of view? Are they really getting it? Like, mm. I don't understand, you know? So I find that one of my counselors had Parkinson's and she was sitting there talking with me and often she would apologize for her tremor. And I said, you know what? I don't know if this is going to hurt your feelings or or uh, make you feel better, but I, I, 
I feel comfortable with you because I know that in some way mm. you see the struggles that I'm having right now in a different way. Nice. And she's like, I, I never even thought of that too. I thought of it as an embarrassment. And I'm like, no, it actually, we can be very comfortable. Nice. What a great, <laughs> so that's a great I, approach. I like that part of it. That's great. So, um, I don't know if you, you guys aren't weren't with state government, but there was a guy in transportation, his name was Ray Burke, and he was legally blind, and he did all the transportation um, news for the agency about the traffic and all that stuff. And his office, speaking of um, technology, his office was totally ge- geared to help him with his um, legal blindness. And it was amazing what the equipment that he had to be able to do his job. And, of course, he had the most amazing sense of humor of anybody I've met. Um, so I was I was offered a job at transportation. I said the only reason I'm taking this is so I can meet Ray Burke, um, because he was just a hoot. But when you went into his office, there was uh, I think it's the technology that Phil was talking about on the more expensive end. It was amazing what what he used to be able to do his job. Amazing. But anyway, so you I've been trying to list here. Um, I've been the deaf, the hard of hearing, the blind, the handicapped, aging, that's me, uh, Parkinson's and any, uh, you must deal with all kinds of um, conditions. And uh, can we talk about um, some of the equipment that you have? We've mentioned some, but there's a whole store full of them in Waterbury. Yeah, it's a, it's a very extensive inventory. And, um, you know, you mentioned some specific conditions, but it, uh, it really doesn't even begin to touch the, I bet. the full spectrum that we do see and are happy to support. Um, again, that's part of the, the joy of our program is that we don't have to, um, have that specific diagnosis or, right. or, uh, you know, um, if you're just having some difficulties, it's fine to approach us. So, um, you know, our inventory, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, in Waterbury, we've got quite a lot going on there. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, adaptive, um, gardening tools, um, for people that maybe are suffering from arthritis. Um, we have, uh, a number of, um, fidgets and other sensory type devices for those, uh, who may have conditions where they are, um, you know, a, a little more susceptible to sensory input and, and need that, um, just a little bit of help to, um, uh, you know, to navigate situations. Phil, I, I hate to break in here, but we do have to take a break and we'll be back because I would, I just thought of a couple of them myself that I, we just need to make sure people know what's out there. We'll be back with Phil Seitler and, uh, Joy Reddington, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back with Vermont Viewpoint. This is Pat McDonald, your host, and I'm here with uh, Phil Seiler and with Joy Reddington, and we're talking about assistive technology. And, Phil, you were in the midst of uh, discussing a lot of um, tools that are available um, to meet people's needs. And I remember one that I loved. It's a 
um, a sensor that fits inside a coffee cup so that when you're filling the cup, if you're having a, a visual issue, that uh, it will ding or do something that tells you you've almost reached the top. And I could use that myself sometimes. Yeah, we definitely have that as part of our lending library. Not only that, it uh, has two sensors so that uh, you fill it up with the hot liquid and then you add a little cream, you'll get a different sound uh, as you reach the second level. Um, But, yeah, and all of this uh, assistive technology, our our entire uh, inventory is available to be searched online. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, it's uh, freely searchable by anybody. Uh, You can even request. Uh, loans directly from uh, ah. the system online. Uh, it's at uh, vt.at4all with the four being a number dot com. Uh, and you can also find that on our state website. We link out to that there as well. That's great. Thank you. I hope everybody got that. It's vt.at4all.com, right? Correct. Excellent. Before being the number not not spelled out in letters. Right. Exactly. And you mentioned before, Phil, which I wanted to talk about because you mentioned a woman who was ahead of the program. It's called Vermont Hireability, run by Diane Dalmas, which is a name I know from my days in state government. And I'm so glad to hear that she's doing, continuing to do all the great work that she does. Could you talk about Vermont Hireability and how that connects with uh, with what you're doing? Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, you know, we're part of the Department of Disabilities, Aging, and Independent Living, and one of the divisions uh, in there is, um, it used to be called Vocational Rehabilitation, um, but has recently rebranded as Hireability. Great. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for those who know about Voc Rehab, it's one of the oldest um, federal programs that dates back to World War I, um, so it's a very... Uh, you know, it was time for some freshening up of the look, uh, and and uh, we're excited to be part of their journey. Um, so they are our grant holder. We are funded by a federal grant from the Administration for Community Living uh, out of Health and Human Services. Uh, Hireability holds our grant. Um, so that's our connection with them. We also help them with their clients. We provide AT consultations. Uh, so, um, you know, Hireability is specifically focused on um, finding employment uh, and more specifically careers uh, for people with disabilities. I love that name. I really do. The more you were saying it, the more it's very uplifting as opposed to folk rehab. It's um, it's looking forward to being hired. And that's a great, I don't know who came up with that, but that's a great rebranding. So good for you all. Um, I also found something on your website that's called uh, No Wrong Door. Could you or Joy talk about that and what that means? Well, No to. Wrong Door ahead, really means... Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want no, to go? go ahead, Joy. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, no Wrong Door basically means that um, nowhere, no matter how you access services or... Um, information at the state, you won't be turned away saying, oh, well, this is not our department, um, so you need to go here instead. Um, what we try to do is a more holistic approach to it um, and say, you know, do like a what we call INA is information and assistance, kind of tease out information from folks. And if we're the place that can help them, 
then fantastic. And if not, we will connect them with another person who can help them, not send them away and say, we don't do this. We're trying to break down all the siloing that happens at the state level. Mm -hmm. And I think the state is really working hard at doing that because, you know, for someone who needs assistance to kind of go here, there, everywhere, it's really hard. And we want to make that experience as easy and streamlined as as, uh, possible. Well, I, having worked in the state government, I give you kudos because one-stop shopping is uh, is really um, a good thing for the people that we serve. Um, and I bet they get a little they get a little frustrated going from here to there. So good for you. And I love the the phrase "no wrong door." That's that's comforting too. Just pick a door and go in, and you'll be helped. Exactly. Excellent. Because exactly like you said, in the past, it was very frustrating for folks to kind of get what they needed because maybe they had, you know, three or four things going on. Maybe they're aging, but maybe they also have a disability and maybe they also want to have a job. So, you know, these are all things that we can help with and they shouldn't have to go from here, there and everywhere, you know, when we're centralized. Well, and maybe I'm wrong and you would know better than I for sure. But um, I think Vermont is a great place to be if you do, if you are dealing with a disability from a job perspective. Um, I spoke to a young lady years ago down in New York, and um, they were nowhere near as, um, and I'm sure we have a lot to learn and a lot to grow, but they were nowhere near as advanced as we are, um, where they call those, where they call them workshops or um, yeah, sheltered workshops. Yeah, oh yeah, my gosh! From New York City, Pat. Yeah. So I can personally attest that that unfortunately is still the case. Oh yeah, I know. I was um, so frustrated talking to this. It was a mom with her daughter, and I was, and this child just was almost desperate for you know talk to me. And I thought, oh, I said, come to Vermont. This is the place to be because we probably still have a long way to go, but at least we're headed in the right direction. You know what? We're leaps and bounds ahead of yep. some states. And I can, like I said, with definite experience from New York City, mm. you would think with a larger population, there would be more opportunity for right. change. But, you know, working at the state level for such a big place, once the wheels are in motion, it's really hard to change. And, I mean, I just know from experience from working with folks, I used to be a job coach. I used to work in vocational training when I was in New York City. And, you know, I had one, it was in a high school setting. So I had one student who said to me, you know, if I push another cart, I swear (laughs) I'm going to crash them. This gentleman had so many talents. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he could look at a computer program and tell you exactly what went into it. I mean, wow. of course, he was in high school, didn't have any formal training, but there was something to capitalize on there. Yep. And he was pushing carts. And for me, um, I was diagnosed late with autism, so I wasn't aware that I was autistic at that point. I really felt his pain because mm-hmm. I was like, why is he being pigeonholed into this? because he has a disability that's yep. not okay mm-hmm. and i worked to get him a job at one of the local colleges just fixing tech and it just bloomed from there Great. i still talk to him actually that's and good. he now works for columbia university he heads their tech department outstanding good job so 
Yeah, so it's really hard to kind of change mindsets like that. But you know what? We are. We are ahead. And we do have a lot to learn. But I think the difference between Vermont and other states is that we are very open. And we're open to learning. And we're open to learning from the people we serve as well. Great. That's really excellent. Um, I noticed in your website you do a lot of public awareness uh, outreach. Phil, maybe you can talk about um, um, what you do to, to get the public uh, and large companies and everybody aware of of what you have and how you can work with them. Yeah, we do a lot. Um, just being on your show, Pat. Yeah, <laughs> you well, well, I'm glad you are. <laughs> But we do have um, presentations that we will go out. Uh, in fact, Joy just presented with Ben yesterday for the Brain Injury Association of Vermont. Um, and uh, we introduce people to what our program is, uh, how to access us, uh, what they can expect from our services. Um, and, uh, you know, we uh, we get a lot of invites. We mm. try to accept as many as we can. Uh, we are a very small staff. Um, you know, we really only have... Um, uh, a couple full-time people and a couple contractors. So uh, we do have, you know, we've got a very broad mission, and so we can't always say yes, but we do try and get out there uh, and make sure that the word spread, because I think, as you noted, um, there does seem to be, uh, we do seem to be a bit of a hidden gem. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree with that because um, I was talking to my husband and he had no idea. He worked at the state police and he had no idea that you were around the corner. Um, and so I think we need to help spread the word a little bit. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, your ATP Advisory Council um, because that sounds like it, you, um, it's comprised of individuals with disabilities, family members, uh, people from the community, um, agency representatives. Um, how, um, how involved are you with the council? Yeah, so um, we, uh, the council meets quarterly, uh, and uh, as the name states, they are an advisory council uh, to help uh, advise our state program. Uh, help us see opportunities that we maybe don't uh, always see ourselves, um, make connections that we're, you know, need to make within the various, um, you know, provider agencies and, and other organizations that are helping uh, the same sort of uh, clients that we are. Uh, so we are, there's some mandated positions based on the federal grant that we have. Uh, you know, we have to work with our, uh, vocational rehabilitation, mm-hmm. um, organization, or the division for the blind and visually impaired has a representative, um, a, the Department of Labor, uh, Department of Education. Uh, but the goal is to have majority of the membership be either uh, someone with a disability who uses assistive technology or a caregiver for somebody who does. Uh, and I will tell you that we could use more of those people mm. on. So if there's anybody listening and you are interested, please go to atp.vermont.gov, search for the Advisory Council application, and apply. Uh, we would love to have your input. Yeah, I noticed that uh, as part of the council, there are family members or guardians. Do you reach out and help those family members and guardians to help their um, sons or daughters or the people that they're um, involved with helping, do you help them help your customers? Yes, we do. <laughs> In fact, uh, we have lots of uh, third-party 
um, we'll work with pretty much anybody on behalf right. of somebody as long as the individual is interested in our services. Yeah, because uh, I think being a caregiver is um, a, a challenge all in itself. So it'd be helped to have some some neat tricks to know how to how to deal with um, what what faces you daily. Phil and Joy, we have a caller, Marsha from Barry. Marsha, go ahead. Thanks, Pat. Hi, hi to the guest. I am just calling to thank you guys very, very much for what you do. I, you have evolved from the years when I used to deal with you, and I have been I have been working with with Tracy for a long time, and uh, she is an extraordinary person. And one of the, one one of the many great things that she does, and I think you you mentioned this, but she's an in in innovative and creative person that could make something old work a lot better with just a little bit of tinkering of tinkering or something. She's able to make things work 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 better, but she's tireless in trying to help you find things to help your problems. I have I have vision and hear, 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 hearing issues, and I have got an, an enormous amount of help from you guys. Some more, some more power to, to, to you, and thanks for all the great work that you do. Well, what a lovely call. Phil, Joy, you want to respond to Marsha? I'm just very touched by that feedback, and I agree that Tracy is a wonder. Uh, she does uh, amazing things all the time, and uh, it's just a pleasure to watch her work. Um, so I'm glad that uh, she was able to help you out. Thank you, but I am just thrilled at how you guys have have evolved in your your outreach and your responsiveness. That is the way it used to be, and it's it's such a blessing. Hmm. I think what you also what you also need are more grantors. <laughs> Isn't that the more, truth? <laughs> you need to have you need to have more grants to pay for the to pay for the great things that that you do. But thanks an awful lot. That's great. Thank yeah. you very much for your call, Marcia. That's really very lovely, and I'm glad they were able to help you. Um, it's it's like a, being in a candy store where you work in Waterbury. You walk in, you're not quite sure what, where to go first. Um, so, and does Tracy work out of here in Waterbury? Is that uh, probably the closest for Marcia? Correct. Tracy yeah. is uh, based out of the Waterbury you know, uh, office complex. That's great. Um, I have to share a, a story. I don't know if I should fit on it, but I was, I'm very involved with Washington County mental health and uh, mental health and the situation here in Vermont is of real concern to me. But I went to an event one time and there were four young gentlemen, well, maybe not so young, but young, younger than me, and they were nonverbal. And they taught them how to um, use a computer. And uh, anyway, uh, the long story, after they learned how to use the computer, they started writing poems, which would made me cry every time I read one. They were powerful. They were – and this was in these in these folks – this is with their feelings and their thoughts, and they were nonverbal. And having not had that ability to to share 
what their feelings were with people was um, must have been horrible for them. And yet this uh, Washington County put this book together of all the poems that these uh, gentlemen um, prepared. And it was just breathtaking. So you just don't look and stereotype because you just, as, as Joy said, you just don't know what talent's there. So that's my Washington County story, but I, I was, I bought that book and I, I read it all often and think, you know, you need to look beyond the, beyond the, what you see. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, Pat. Huh? I couldn't agree with you more. Incredible, isn't it? Um, It's one of the most, more exciting areas, I think, in the assistive technology realm where really, um, the, the access to communication is mm -hmm. really advancing by leaps and bounds. Uh, and uh, we are finding, uh, I mean, it's just, it is incredibly powerful, um, uh, you know, being able to, to give voice to those that uh, traditionally yeah. have not been able to. Well, and, and there's so much inside of them that, you know, desperate to get out. And, and if once they find the tool to express themselves, um, you know, they can do that. And, and what's inside and what they've been carrying around with them for years, um, pretty powerful stuff. So I'm I'm glad that happens. Um, we also have that um, the snoozeling room in um, uh, in Barry. I don't know if you've been involved with that. Uh, it's Washington County Mental Health. It's for uh, young children or anybody with with autism. It's a sensory um, facility where there's all kinds of uh, uh, colors and lights and and uh, noises oh, yeah, and that's smells. A wonderful place. Isn't that incredible? I, I, I encourage everybody just to go and, and see what's there because it's, I think it's the only one in Vermont, um, if I remember correctly. But anyway, um, is there anything other, uh, maybe we could go through some of the other things that you have, uh, available. Um, I know there's different kinds of clocks and I'm just trying to remember, this was a long time ago, my memory banks, the little gray cells are struggling a little, but, could you explain a little bit more about what is there? Because I think um, people could relate if they hear something that, that they know would would help them. Well, one thing that uh, actually blew my mind that was completely low-tech that Phil brought to my attention, um, I was reaching out of my wheelchair to grab something, and I nearly fell out. And he's <laughs> like, hey, what about this? And it's a grabber. Oh. And um, just a simple grabber, but... This grabber that we have at the tryout center, it's not like your traditional ones that you see um, as sold on TV ones that right. really don't grab anything. <laughs> this thing could grab something as heavy as a coffee cup, which is very important to me. <laughs> right with you. Or as small as a piece of paper on the ground. Wow. And it's, it's very, and it's not hard to pull, like when you pull the lever, like on the ones that you could buy in the general stores that really don't work. Right. Um, it's a really hard pull for such less tension, you know, mm-hmm. so you weren't really picking up anything. This is a very easy trigger pull, and it could pick up something as small as a piece of paper or a quarter, and it has the strength to hold a coffee cup. Wow. So that is amazing to me. No, that is. I, we actually use one of those grabbers that don't work at home. Um, I'm I'm on that category of elder kind of, and uh, the grounds have gotten to be a long way away these days. So I use it uh, a lot. But yeah, you're right; it doesn't you get work. Down on the ground, you can't get back up. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> That's why Bruce. 
<laughs> when he hears me calling, he knows I need help. Um, it's pretty sad. This getting old stuff is uh, not for the faint of heart. Um, so is there a national organization or a group that you belong to where you could find um, new things or, or different techniques and stuff? Do you, do you have resources that you can use as a, as a program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're part of uh, a group called ATAP um, uh, that is a national organization. So every state and territory in the United States has an AT program. Um, uh, and so uh, even if you're not in Vermont, uh, these services are available to you in New Hampshire and New York. Um, they're all organized slightly differently, but uh, um, it's one of the great things about our program is that uh, – there's a fair bit of freedom within our grant and how we organize. And so we do learn a lot uh, from each other. We gather um, monthly and also on a, a yearly uh, three-day conference where we really talk about issues, what are something new things we are seeing. Um, so it's a very vibrant uh, national community. I will also say that in the social media spaces, there's a lot of uh, uh, AT communities um, and uh, especially around um, the maker industry. Um, so, you know, people that are creating pretty much custom assistive technology because, hmm. uh, again, uh, you know, everybody's unique. And so, uh, you know, sometimes the off-the-shelf stuff isn't quite right and it needs to be modified for, for the individual. Okay. Um, That's great. And so the, it's available to customize something for an individual. Um how do you do that? If I walked in with something rather unique, is there a place that you can go to get something made for me um, to meet my particular need? Maybe, but we know resources. So, uh-huh. um, like, I think the call, your caller uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, Tracy had spent a lot of time working with right. her um, uh, specifically around um, – uh, some of her disabilities. And so there's a lot of that sort of tinkering, like, you know, again, especially with things right. like switch access, uh, it requires, uh, it requires some modification. Yeah. Good old Vermont ingenuity. Um, we do have to end the show. I'm very sorry because I we keep talking about this forever. It makes me very excited to know you're there. Thank you, Phil uh, Seiler and Joy Reddington for all you do for Vermont. And I hope Vermonters will check you out and, Come check out the store. Thank you for both uh, being on the show. I really appreciate it. This is uh, Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.